0: Information about what's transpired, about who's seen Jesus, about all the, these guys are all excited, they're kind of being they're not making sense, and they're asking Thomas to believe what they have seen, but he is not. Uh, I think a lot of times we're very unfair to Thomas because nobody else has, to this point in the resurrection story has come to faith without an eyewitness, personal experience, and encounter. Why would Thomas be any different? And uh, I don't know what happened to this guy. You know, it's kind of a cruel irony that all of the disciples are there except for Thomas. Uh, We don't know who else was there besides uh, the disciples, but Thomas missed the boat here. And you wonder, was he, like, shopping? Was he depressed and just out on his own? Uh, Was his skeptical thoughts uh, keeping him separated from the group? We don't know. It doesn't say but it's really sad for this guy, all right? And I think if, if I was in this story, this would be me, because I'm this guy. I'm the guy who misses everything, right? I'm the guy with the worst luck. I don't play the lottery, not because I believe it's a sin. It's just I know I would always lose. I don't gamble. I did gamble once. I lost. And I've been convinced that it's just, you know, my luck. And you look at poor Thomas, you think, this guy, you know. They all get to see Jesus, And he goes to 7-Eleven to buy a soda, comes back. We just saw Jesus! No! It can't be true! How could I miss it? And what's even more kind of striking about this thing is to know that it's like, was Jesus waiting for him to leave the room? Was God up there going, Okay, Thomas hasn't left yet. Oh, now he's left. Okay, quick, before he comes back. Right? Well, this poor guy. Well, part part of what it... makes us a skeptic is is that they have have missed out. And they have not had the same experience that everybody else, but they're asked to believe it. And a skeptic is a person who needs confirmation. They're a person who is not going to take another person's word for it. They need evidence and proof themselves. It's important to note here, very important to note this distinction. There's a huge difference between a skeptic and a chronic doubter. A doubter is a person who refuses to believe because it's not convenient to them. Uh, The religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, uh, who had ultimately put Jesus on the cross, they weren't skeptics. They refused to believe the truth. Jesus gave them overwhelming evidence that he was more than just the average guy. And after he'd done miracle after miracle after miracle... They come to Jesus and they said, Lord, you know, Jesus, we would believe you if you would just give us a sign, right? Well, he'd given them tons of signs. Finally, he gives them the sign of raising Lazarus from the dead. Uh, It says that after he did that, they determined to kill him. Not because they didn't believe the miracle, but because they believed the miracle, okay? The problem wasn't that they were skeptical about what Jesus did, the problem is that they refused to believe the truth because it wasn't convenient to them. Uh, the reality is, a lot of people in the world call themselves skeptics and uh, they, 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 they bash the Bible, they dish the Bible, they call themselves scholars, they say they have great arguments to show that it's all a lie and false, but they're not really skeptics. They are people for whom the truth is not convenient. And the bottom line is, if you want to sin, the truth really is not convenient, right? Okay, The guy that wants to have sex with his girlfriend before marriage, he doesn't want this concept that there's a God who's telling him you can't do that, right? And so he's got a choice to make. I'm going to ex- accept my own version of truth that's convenient for me. I want to sin, and this whole concept of God makes me sin and feel guilty. So I'll just pretend God doesn't exist, and that way I can sin and not feel guilty. Okay, that's a chronic doubter. That is not a skeptic. Uh, Thomas was not a chronic doubter. He was a guy who was seriously seeking truth. He just needed to be seriously convinced. All right? Uh, Next point. He is serious about truth. Uh, By the way, speaking of those who are chronic doubters, uh, one of the greatest illustrations of this comes from church history, from the church itself. Copernicus comes along and says the earth is not the center of the universe. And they wanted to burn him at the stake for that. Why? Well, because the church had declared the earth is the center of the universe. And so, in order to accept the truth of Copernicus, they had to admit that they were wrong. Well, the church in that day believed it was impossible to be wrong. right? So you've got a conflict of interest here. Do we go with the truth, or do we go with our need to be Right? Right, I've I've debated with people like this. <laughs> do I accept the truth, or do I go with my need to be right all the time? Right, I've been that person actually. Um, okay, the skeptic is a person who is very serious about the truth. They, in fact, that is the problem. Thomas was not about to accept anything less than absolute truth. He was not going to be easily led down a wrong path. All right? It wasn't that he didn't want to know the truth, but he wanted to know the truth absolutely. And he wanted firm, convincing evidence that uh, what they were claiming was true. It says he refused to believe. In fact, it uses a double negative here. He says, he says I absolutely refuse to believe. Double negative. Absolutely will not believe this unless there is clear, convincing evidence... Um, now, think about this. In, in John 20, John lays out this this increasing progression of evidence about the resurrection. First, you've got John and Peter at the tomb. And the evidence that John was confronted with was simply the empty tomb and the empty grave clothes. For John, that was enough, right? Then Mary comes along. She's histrionic, delir- I mean, delirious with emotions. She is distraught, She's on the verge of insanity. She's so upset. She sees Jesus. Okay. Um, actually, she hears Jesus. She doesn't see him. She actually is convinced when she hears his voice and he speaks her name. Right. Okay. That's the second bit of evidence. So she saw the empty tomb, the empty grave closed. And now she's convinced because she hears Jesus' voice. Then we go to the uh, room at night. Uh, this group. Now, a collective group of people sees Jesus present. Now, those are the successive stages of evidence. Uh, for Thomas, there were problems with all these, all these proofs. Okay, for him, the empty tomb was... There are too many other explanations for the empty tomb. Could have been stolen, could have been you know, the wrong tomb, could have been a lot of mix-ups, could have been a trick... A lot of explanations in, in Thomas's mind for the empty, empty tomb. Then you go to Mary, okay? Mary, distraught, overwhelmed with emotion, histrionic. Um, the, the reality is, and it's actually a, a modern verified fact, that a lot of people in the midst of deep grief have encounters with the, those who have died. It happens actually quite often, enough so that a lot of psychologists have written, written a lot about the phenomenon. Uh, this kind of crazy, delirious, you know, histrionic, emotional woman sees Jesus, is that convincing proof? Well, it wasn't to Thomas. Um, Jesus appearing to the, the twelve in the room is a little more convincing. One very emotionally disturbed woman having a, you know, a, a vision or experience is one thing. Twelve guys all at once having a vision, a little harder to believe. But even this is not convincing for Thomas for a number of reasons. It's interesting that John makes it a point that that it's Thomas the twin. I wonder how many times Thomas had had his identity mistaken for his twin brother, Bob. Right? Right? Or whatever his name was. Uh, He understood that very often identities can be mistaken. Maybe you thought, you know, how do you know it was really Jesus? How do you know somebody didn't dress up looking like Jesus? Got a robe like him, got a haircut like his, you know, in bad light it was night. How how do you know it was Jesus? Or it could have been a lot of other things. It could have been a vision. It could have been just a what we call a theophany. In the Old Testament, often God would appear in a form that people recognized, but it wasn't a person, it was just a vision. It was like in, you know, in Star Wars, where they had that kind of holographic thing. It was, it was a hologram, right? A lot of other explanations. And for those, for, for, for Thomas, those things are not adequate. He wants convincing proof that the person they saw was an actual body, and not just any body, but the body of Jesus. Uh, because he wanted to. It wasn't that he didn't believe they saw something. He did not believe yet that there was convincing evidence and proof that it was actually Jesus physically raised back to life in bodily form. And being a good hardcore skeptic, uh, he needs evidence. And he's thought this through, apparently, because he's very clear about what evidence he needs. He says, literally, he says, I want to jab my finger. I want to throw my finger into the hole in his hand. Okay? I want to stick my hand into the spear wound in his side. Now, here's the deal, and here's his thinking. Somebody who, who has hung on a cross and who has the visible scars of nail prints in his hands and feet and the, the, the scar, the puncture wound of a sword in his side is somebody who has been killed, okay? Okay, he says, I don't want just his fingerprint. I don't want just, just his face. I want proof of a guy who's died, all right? Now, if i got proof of a guy who's died, and apparently Thomas had seen Jesus' body. We don't know if he saw him on the cross, if he stood close enough, or he saw him afterward as he lay as they prepared him. But he knew the exact location of that spear wound. He knew what those nail marks looked like. He said, if I can see those, if I can touch those, it's not just makeup, it's not just stage makeup, not a trick, if I can put my finger in it, that will be convincing evidence for me that it really was the very same body that hung on the cross and died, come back to life, the the very same Jesus. Okay? Thomas wants to believe, but he wants convincing proof that it's not a joke, it's not a trick, it's not God doing, you know, smoke and mirrors, holograms, that it is, in fact, the resurrected Jesus. Now, um, in in Thomas's mind, this would have been foolproof evidence, and I would I would agree. Really, the only evidence that would be more foolproof than what Thomas asked for would be DNA evidence, right? which in that time, in that day and age, was not possible. And I'm not sure it would have been reliable. I'm not sure that our DNA will match post-resurrection. Okay, That raises some interesting questions. Only Bill Clark could probably plummet, <laughs> right, being the scientist that he is. Uh, this was hands-on physical proof. Now, as I said, a lot of people kind of criticize Thomas. We look down on him. We uh, pick on him. I would like to argue that he really is the hero of the story and that he is a great gift from God because he was not going to be easily convinced. And I really believe that God in his timing and in his goodness, God was very careful to reveal things step by step so that Thomas was not there. It was no accident that the most skeptical guy in the whole crowd, one who had been proven before to be a bit of a pessimist, and uh, you know, had this kind of nature and temperament, that God made a point to reveal himself when he wasn't there. It was no accident. It was God's divine and sovereign purpose. Because the role of the skeptic is very important. Let me ask you this question. If it wasn't for Thomas, would you believe the resurrection? If the only evidence we had was just the empty tomb and empty grave clothes would that be enough to convince you that it's true? If you only had the testimony of Mary, would that be enough to convince you that it's true? If you only had the witness of the twelve disciples in the room who saw perhaps a vision or a spirit, would that be enough to convince you? Well, for most of us it probably would. But there are some of you out there who are skeptics, Right? Some of you who need more than that, alright, that's okay. It is legitimate to need more than that. It is okay to ask God for convincing, hardcore proof. And so God has given us the gift of Thomas, the guy who was on the scene, who is for us our hero because he's like the major super all-out detective in this story. He is our Sherlock Holmes. Everybody know who Sherlock Holmes is? If you don't know who Sherlock's home is, raise your hand. Okay, some of you who are like 20 and under, you're going, Sherlock, what? It's like a leprechaun or something? Well, I don't know. I can't come up with some other modern like super detectives? And well, they came up with like Matlock and Perry Mason. I'm going, I'm an old guy. Holy cow. Uh, who's like a modern new like you know, detective? I don't know. Monk. Monk. It's a monk. Okay. It's been too long since I've watched TV. I've lived in Thailand for too long. He is our monk, our our guy, our detective. All right. Who is not going to just take the face value of things? Who's going to dig deeper until he's convinced of the truth? Okay. Praise God for Thomas. Uh, to the degree he is convinced is the degree we can be confident it's true. The other guys may have been pushovers. Okay, I commend John that all he had to see was empty grave clothes, and that was enough for him. However, there were people who thought more about this, who were deep and serious thinkers, and not that John didn't think, he just thought on different terms. There were guys who thought about the details, who wanted the facts, who were very concerned about concrete evidence. And that was Thomas. And God was very careful to construct and orchestrate this whole thing so that we could have convincing proof. Praise God that Thomas is a monk and not an Inspector Clouseau. Right? We're trying to think of more modern you know, detectives. Everybody knows. We came up with the Pink Panther. We thought, that may not work so well. Well, that's the making of a skeptic. Next I want to look at the undoing of a skeptic. It is good to be skeptical. It's not good to stay a skeptic. It is okay for a season of your life to ask hard questions about the Bible, about truth, about the resurrection, about Jesus. It is never good to stay there forever. And that was certainly true for Thomas. It says that eight days later, uh, inclusive counting, the Jews counted, counting the day you're on. uh, We would call it seven days later, the next Sunday. Same room... Same closed door, same you know, same setting. Uh, this time Thomas is present, and just as before, Jesus magically materializes appears. We don't know; he's just there, uh, and he says the same thing to them: "Peace, shalom, greetings, peace to you." And then he turns and he looks right at Thomas, and in a very powerful fashion, he says. Literally, Thomas, get your finger over here. Literally is what it is. If you, if you translate it out of the Greek literally, he says, Thomas, bring your finger here. Okay? Whoa, buddy. If you're Thomas, you're probably going to hide all your fingers about now. Right? Uh, and Jesus begins to unfold and confront Thomas with the evidence. Now I want you to take stock of what evidence that now appears before Thomas. He's in this locked upper room, the door barred, uh, the door is closed, locked. they're in this room. Jesus appears. Okay, that's good. That is significant, okay It could still be a vision could be a you know, apparition. Uh, he speaks. He apparently has a physical body. he speaks. they recognize him. Um, he bears the scars that Thomas wanted to see. And we don't know how Jesus did this. Uh, One commentator, interestingly, says that Jesus appeared naked. (laughs) Otherwise, how could you see the wound in his side? I don't know that I would go that far. Uh, That's probably not really implied in the text. But certainly, he made accessible the scars in his hand. He says, Come touch, come look, come examine the evidence. He says, Look at the wound in my side. Whatever he was wearing, it was enough that he could examine physically the scar from the wound in his side. Uh, He gives to to Thomas exactly what he demanded, hardcore physical evidence that the marks and scars on his body matched exactly the marks and scars on his body as it hung on the cross. But there's one more piece of evidence that uh, he doesn't mention, but certainly is implied. And that is that Jesus knew exactly everything Peter had said. Now, Jesus doesn't say, By the way, you know, in case you missed this, you know, I'm telling you everything you said. I don't think Thomas needed to be reminded of that. It was quite clear and evident to him that Jesus had heard everything he said and thought. That Jesus knew that Jesus was there. That Jesus had been with Thomas this whole time. And Jesus knew everything he spoke, everything he thought, everything he did. I don't know what was most convincing for Thomas. It doesn't say what Thomas did. In fact, it doesn't record him doing anything. We don't know that he actually went and touched the scars. He may have, he may not. I have a very strong feeling that what was most convincing for Thomas was not the physical evidence that he saw in Jesus' hands and side. For me, having a guy stand before me who told me everything I said would be convincing enough. That would be pretty powerful. To know that in a closed room, in a closed conversation that I had been with these guys, all of a sudden this guy shows up who knows exactly what I said, who knows what I was thinking. That would be scary. That would be convincing. Well, the combined effect certainly is convincing for Thomas. Um, but Jesus does not stop there. He says, Thomas, you have been unbelieving. Now become a believing one. Uh, the verb tense that's used there is an imperative, it's a command. He says, Enough of this, enough of this, you know, you, you've served your role as a skeptic. It's okay that you've done that. But you can't keep going on as a skeptic. Believe. And I believe it's not as much a rebuke or even a command as it is an invitation. Speaking faith into Thomas. Uh, He challenges him to believe. And in fact, um, we really get a picture here of the source of faith. Why did Thomas believe? Well, certainly... Presented with that kind of convincing evidence, it would be hard not to believe if your goal was to be a skeptic and not a doubter, now of course, there are those that even given that kind of evidence they're so committed to their own truth they don 't want to know the facts. but that wasn't the case for Thomas and he's confronted with these facts, but is that why he believed well i don't know for sure, but uh, I would argue I would suggest that the source of thomas's faith ultimately was not just the evidence, but was actually Jesus himself. In fact, as you look through Scripture, and especially look through John, uh, in John twelve thirty two, Jesus said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. Jesus made this promise, for all those that the Father has given me, after I have been lifted up, after I have died on the cross and been rose again, I will draw those to me. It is my job and responsibility to bring them, to convince them. It is the job of the Holy Spirit, the work of Jesus, to give and instill in us faith. Hebrews 12 puts it this way, that we are to look to Jesus who is the originator and perfecter of our faith. Ultimately, where does faith come from? Well, it is ultimately a work of God in our heart. And if you are a skeptic, if you're a person here this morning, and you are honestly searching... God will answer you. He will meet you and He will speak the truth to you. He will develop faith in you if you are genuinely seeking Him. If you're going through a difficult time and you have serious doubts about things, it is okay to have those doubts. And know that it's not your job to bolster your faith. It's your job to be honest about your questions. It's God's place to bolster faith. It is his job and his place to draw you. As you ask questions, it is his job to give answers, to draw conclusions in your heart and mind so that you come to know the truth. Jesus is the originator and perfecter of our faith. He is the one who does that work. And I love this picture. Uh, God let Thomas squirm for a while. You know, I don't know why he didn't show up the next night. Eight days. I don't understand God's timing. Uh, I've worked with high school students who have squirmed for years. Uh, Several years ago, I worked with one particular young lady uh, who grew up in a Christian home. Her parents had been missionaries. And she really was blessed with a skeptic's heart. She was a very smart girl. She was a deep thinker. And she asked very hard questions. And we had this little Bible study, and I would meet with them every week, and she would ask me these impossible questions. You know, how do you know? How do you know it's true? And we would go through all these arguments, and she was genuinely seeking truth. Uh, after she graduated, she went back to her home country, and about two years later she emailed me and she said, I want you to know that I'm involved in a good church, I still have a ton of questions, and I don't have good answers always, but I know Jesus. And He has showed Himself to me. And even though I still have a lot of questions that I don't have answers for, I know Jesus. And I know He meets me. I know He walks with me. And I trust in Him. That praise God. Praise God for His faithfulness. And He will do that for us. And that's why I would really encourage parents, don't, we uh, will put it this way, allow your kids to ask those questions. Give them freedom and space and room to wrestle. One of the greatest things we can do is not allow that. And assume that we are going to impose faith on them by not letting them ask hard questions. It doesn't work that way. God is the one who will build and grow faith. And we've got to trust our kids to God's care. Okay, I know this sounds kind of crazy, but where you can't convict your kids, God might be able to do it better. It's hard to believe. Because I know God can't possibly be as smart as we are. But where we cannot get through, He can. And He will. For those who seek Him. For those who are honestly searching. So we can trust our kids to God. We can trust our own doubts to God. And let Him speak His truth into our life. He was not going to let Thomas go. He let him squirm for a while but he was not going to let Thomas drift away. In uh, John 17, 6 and 12, where Jesus prays, he says, God, I revealed you, you to those who gave me. I have guarded them so that not one was lost. Jesus was not worried that Thomas was going to go too far. He knew he could guard his faith and that he could bring him back. And he did. And we know that he did because of Thomas's. Um, response one last thought though about Thomas before we go to his response is the, the notion that we are being watched as, as Thomas responded and the lot, light dawned on him we really find him in a very similar place that Mary was remember Mary when she was at the tomb peering in the tomb and crying and weeping and the angels had no impact on her at all And she turns around to find that Jesus has been there the whole time, watching over her. And she still doesn't recognize him, but he speaks to her, and she comes to know him, and she realizes he was there all along. I think the same thing was true for Thomas, when he realizes that Jesus had been there a week ago, and in the whole time in between. Jesus saw and was there and was present with Thomas every moment. And I think that light dawned on him. Wow. He knows. And he knows your every thought. He knows everything you say, which ought to be a bit intimidating. okay? He knows everything you look at. He knows every thought. He knows every place you go. He knows everything you say. So when you tell these great stories about how wonderful you are, and you happen to leave out some of the more significant details that make you look not so good. Jesus knows those details, right? He knows everything. He is continually with us. Uh, great reminder from this story. He is the one whose presence is abiding with us always. Whether we know it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, he is with us. Finally, let's look at the faith of the skeptic. The uh, He who believes last should be believed first. That's my first point. Okay, think about that. Uh, If you can believe anybody, believe the converted skeptic. Okay? This guy was a tough cookie to convince. But once he's convinced, he ought to be the first testimony you believe. Right? Because Thomas believes, you and I can believe. That's the point. And that's why he really is the hero of this story. He wasn't just a little convinced. He didn't say, okay, well, I think I'm getting a clue here. He doesn't say, well, okay, so you rose again. I get that part. That's not what he says. What does, what does he say? He says, my Lord and my God. Thomas makes the most profound, incredible statement about Jesus in the whole Gospel of John. He takes it to an extreme. Okay, in the whole book of John, amazingly, neither John nor Jesus have put those two things together that directly. It's implied through the whole book, but it's never been stated that, that directly since, the, since verse 1, actually. Okay. But John hits the punchline of the book right here, And Thomas gets to be the hero who delivers the punchline of the story. He doesn't have just faith, a little faith, that this might be the Messiah. He has faith that this is God, Almighty in human flesh. And he acknowledges that with a faith far beyond anything any other of the disciples have have proclaimed so far. Not only is his faith uh, deeper, but... Uh, he he who struggles most Thomas uh, uncovers the greatest truth he really makes the greatest declaration about who Jesus is there's a lot of quote quote skeptics critics really who're trying you who try to unravel the bible those who are chronic doubters who refuse its truth because they don't like it it's not convenient for them and a lot of those have made this argument about most of the New Testament they argue that the New Testament was not written in the first century as conservative evangelical scholars would believe. They argue that it was written after Constantine, 300-400 A.D. by a church that needed Jesus to be God. And they rewrote, basically, the New Testament, claiming things for Jesus that he never claimed for himself. Right? Well, the Gospel of John speaks very much against that. Uh, the Gospel of John makes it very clear that Jesus knew he was God and that the disciples from the very beginning understood that. Well, not from the beginning, but from the resurrection. Okay, From Pentecost on, they understood this principle. And uh, And here's Thomas, the great doubter, the great skeptic, making this great proclamation. Now, to get the full impact of what he's saying here, let me just read through some of the Claims about Jesus that are made in the Gospel of John. From the beginning of the book, as you go through, John makes these claims about the person of Christ. Uh, And I won't give all the references, but these just come right straight out of the Gospel of John. John proclaims that Jesus is the active agent of God in creating the universe, that he is the Word of God that became flesh. That He is the sin-bearing Lamb of God. That He is the Messiah. That He is the Son of God. That He is the King of Israel. He is the new temple. A teacher sent from God. The proof of God's love for the world. He is the Savior of the world. He is one equal with God. He has the authority to judge all people. He is the agent of God in judging He is the fulfillment of Scripture. He is the great expected prophet. He is the great I Am. He is the Son of Man. He is the living water. He is the glorified One. He is the bread of life, the Good Shepherd, the One who sustains us. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the crucified King, the risen Lord, and finally... He is Lord and He is God. He is God. Just imagine what this uh, realization must have meant for Thomas. You know, all along for three years, the disciples had walked and lived and moved and breathed with Jesus. And as things unfolded, it became very clear that this wasn't just an average teacher, it wasn't just a good teacher, that there was something very unique and special about Jesus. And they began to think, this is like a Moses. This is like a King David kind of person. This is like an Elijah kind of person. But all of a sudden now, this is a whole new category. Okay, this is a category light years beyond just Elijah, Moses, and David. right? Now Thomas realizes the Creator God of the universe who made everything has been hanging out with me for the last three years. Boy, do I feel stupid. (laughs) Okay? Or small, or in shock. To know that the God of creation, infinite, unending, eternal, has stepped into flesh and blood, has taken on the clothes of human beings, and has walked on this earth and hung out with me for three years and has put up with my nonsense of silliness and lack of faith. I'm standing here talking to the God of the universe. Wow! It's no wonder you don't see Thomas saying anything else. This is God. This Jesus is none other than the God of the universe. John really concludes the book here. Chapter 21 is very much an epilogue. This really is the grand climax of the story. This Jesus that you worship and serve and love and know is none other than God. And not just any God, but he is a God with nail scars on his hands. A God who did not sit in the realm of heaven and rule his world from outside. He has come into the world. He has come to be with us. He has suffered and died and bears the horrible scars of the worst abuse and hate ever by those who created him so that he could be with us, so that he could be God with us. And Thomas, of all people, comes to that conclusion and declares that truth. And it really is the grand climax of the book. And it ends this way. It says, Jesus said, You believe because you have seen me. It's not a criticism. It's not a condemnation. It's a fact. You are a a great skeptic, Thomas, and you have come to truth because of hard evidence. And you've seen. But blessed are those who believe me without seeing. Because the reality is, uh, nobody else is going to get this kind of proof. You, Thomas, have got to stand for all those other Thomases out there who need this kind of evidence. Okay, You're their guy. Okay, They're going to wear your name on their t-shirt. I'm a Thomas fan, right? Because, he says, and, and actually, it's not in most translations, but at verse 30, there's, a, there's actually a conjunction there that could be translated, therefore. Therefore, in addition to all, all these miracles that... That the disciples saw, I John had picked these few so that you would believe. In other words, you could put it like this: believing really is everything. You can be a skeptic, but you can't stay a skeptic. You need to believe. And the bottom line is, uh, seeing is believing. Uh, seeing is believing. The sad thing is, most of us don't get to see. So for us, the best alternative is reading. <laughs> For us, reading is believing. All right? And thank thank God for guys like Thomas who who made a good story, who made convincing proof for us. Blessed are all those who believe even though they have not seen. And he goes on, he says, that by this faith you may believe in Him, and by believing in Him you will have life by the power of His name. Believing is living. Living is knowing Jesus. Let me close just with reading one verse from First Peter chapter 8. Um, before, uh, before Thomas came to know the truth, when he was living the life of a skeptic, he played a very important role, but it wasn't a very happy role. I don't know about you, but I have yet to meet a really happy skeptic. Okay, skeptics are, by nature, very sad, depressed people. Okay, it just goes with the turf. All right? If you can't believe anything, well, it's just miserable. And certainly that was true of Thomas. Uh, he was definitely Mr. Grumpy Pants. Okay? He was not a happy camper. But Peter says this about those who have believed without seeing. In 1 Peter one eighty, he says, You love Jesus even though you have never seen Him. Though you do not see Him now, you trust Him, and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. Uh, You can be skeptical. You can live your life that way. But there is no joy in it. There is great joy in being convinced of truth, grabbing hold of that truth firmly, and living a life of faith And the great facts, the great convincing evidence of the resurrection, the great proof that Jesus was and is the only God, man, who's come to earth to reveal the Father to us. There is great joy in knowing that God and His Son Jesus is with you every day. You may not see Him, you may not know Him, but He is present with you. He is not going to let go of you. He, like Thomas, is guarding you and loving you and walking with you. There's great joy in that. The sign of true faith is a person who has glorious, inexpressible joy. If your life is lacking glorious, inexpressible joy, it's because it's being invaded by doubt. And you need to talk to God about that. You need to say, God, I don't know even what it is that I'm doubting, but I am doubting You. I am not believing fully in everything you have promised, in everything that you are. And I'm not happy. And I know that the only way to true, inexpressible, lasting joy is through the path of faith. Teach me to believe. Let's pray. Father, we really do thank you for your word, your witness, your testimony to the truth. Lord, we thank you for... For Thomas and for those like him who are deep thinkers and who evaluate everything carefully and who do not believe easily or quickly until they're convinced it's true. And Lord, really, we are all very much like Thomas in that we've all missed out on that great upper room appearance. We have all missed out on the experience of witnessing Jesus resurrected first hand. And so, in a sense, we all are left somewhat skeptical. Um, Lord, we pray that you would meet that skeptical doubt with the hard evidence of truth. Lord, that you would meet our doubt and reveal to us, as you revealed yourself to Thomas, not just the information, but ultimately, that we would encounter Jesus face to face maybe not with our physical eyes, but with the eyes of our heart and with the eyes of faith. And Lord, we know that that will have happened in our lives when we can, as Peter exclaimed, rejoice with glorious, inexpressible joy. Lord, may that be true of us as we walk and live by faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.